1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Motorsport Podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz.
0: Some things are made to cope with puddles and rain. Others deal with the stickiest of mud. And as for the snow, that takes a warm coat and sure footing. But when it comes to dealing with all conditions, there's only one thing that springs to mind. Mercedes-Benz Formatik all-wheel drive performance in any condition so whatever the weather or road throws at you you're ready
1: to see the fullMATIC range for yourself visit your local mercedes-benz retailer i'm ed foster and i'm the online editor of motorsport magazine so the first podcast of 2017 and what a podcast we have lined up not only are we joined by our brand new editor nick trot on my right We've also managed to pin down two-time Le Mans winner, Alex Wertz to a Sofitel at Heathrow's Terminal 5. Uh, I'm also joined by Simon Aron, our Features Editor, and behind the camera, Alan Hyde. Um, Alan, thank you again for all your hard work. Um, Alex, I was gonna start with, I, I think, the most left field start to a podcast ever, um, and talk about Steven Spielberg's ET. And the, apparently that had an influence on you becoming a BMX rider, which was your kind of first foreign professional sport. Well, first (laughs) let me
2: say hello to uh, the viewers and listeners, wherever they are in the world. Uh, Thanks for being with us. Yes, E.T., Steven Spielberg, what a film it was. And uh, (laughs) it brought a big wave into Europe, into the childhood dreams, which was the BMX bike. Maybe if you remember, E.T. was uh, been driven by Elliot, I think, on a BMX bike. And we saw these bikes and it's like, my God, this is so cool. And then we researched and it was when BMX really started booming and that got me hooked on, on
1: these two wheels. And uh, because you obviously, you kind you of on, but then motorsport kind of came in, you started carting. Um, you were not a perfect shape for karts because you were so tall, but BMX is, you're obviously a very good shape for, you won the world championship age 12. Why go from pedal power to, to karting? Uh,
2: it's a good question, and now how, mo- how mobility is going, we very soon go back to battle power and <laughs> forget the <laughs> combustion I, I, I won't. <laughs> I won't go <get> back <laughs> yeah. to battle power. I, I'm with you, I'm a petrol <laughs> head. But uh, it's actually, you just need to again look at my family history, and it, it we are racers. Uh, it was my granddad, uh, dad, was my father, he was three times European champion in Rallycross, the first FA ground champion in Rallycross actually, as it's a booming sport and I love it. I'm quite happy to mention it, because... Uh, <laughs> strength to my old man and um, So I grew up on the racetrack and uh, then I had this BMX racing which really uh, Was cool and I'm so happy I did it because it I learned a lot from my life in in this period of time and Being age 11 12 13 traveling around the world. um, I had a sponsor who paid for it. It was Adidas It was really cool stuff, but the moment I saw a go-kart uh, the BMX bike got dusty, and I was uh, for me it
1: was always clear to be motor racer. So it's interesting you mentioned rallycross because uh, have you t- have you tested rallycross car recently, or t- or are you about to test a rallycross car? Did I hear that right?
2: Yeah, I already uh, drove it, and uh, I love it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I was going to say you've 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 um you've kind of retired from racing several times and come back to racing several times, and then retired again, and then come back again. There, are, I mean, it'd be a fantastic thing to follow in your father's wheel trucks and do a bit around run across, wouldn't it? Particularly so at a time that the sport's you know, exploding like it is.
2: Uh, yeah, I agree, but I have to say something. Is I did retire from professional racing, but when I said that, is I said, I will do one-offs because I still love racing and I have no problem doing it. The only thing I don't want to do anymore is to put a full season effort in a factory programme as race driver. And I stuck to that. And that's why also I don't think... It will work out for me racing the full Rallycross World Championship. Even so I'm in discussion with Team Austria who runs a very professional organization who organized the test for me. Uh, as much as I would love to, the reason I stopped racing is because my entrepreneurial interest is just taking over um, for the two years of age. In this sense I really want to move on from being behind the wheel of being in the management of the sport and my road safety and racetrack business
4: did you ever consider um when you were making when you were riding BMX and you were you were driving cars did you consider that one of them might actually be a career or was it still just for the hell of it at that at that time only for doing it right
2: in that moment uh especially in the early days until you maybe become a professional you never think of the day after uh or I never did Maybe I should have. Um, but you only do it because you love it. And that was so cool about athletes and sports people. And th- even later when they go into the management, bottom line, deep inside, they love it. So it's a very puristic view and simple view of, of whatever you're doing.
1: Um, it's, you know, Obviously, motor racing is an extremely difficult sport to get to the top of. I think everyone knows that. But I, I think some... Current drivers w- would be surprised at the kind of the lengths and the struggle that that you had, the lengths you mentioned, the struggle you had. Because I was reading that you, were, when you were doing Formula Ford, obviously step up from from karting. Um, you went off to New Zealand to do a couple of rounds, and money was so tight that you, you couldn't pay the hotel. Or and you, I seem to remember sharing a Big Mac. So t- tell us about kind of the struggle in Formula Ford and how, how difficult it was. Yeah, so I mean, karting
2: I did on the lowest budget possible. I, I did my own engine uh, tuning. Uh ended up uh, always retiring uh, but it was anyway a fun lesson but then went to formula Ford, and we had uh, a gentleman with us who whilst he was in new zealand his company folded so i then had to pay some of the bills of his but that was not in the budget and we ended up on the last day in, in the last race that we knew we cannot pay the hotel but you got price money When you were in the top three so we banked on me again finishing (laughs) in the top three it worked absolutely no pressure (laughs) It worked for the few races before but then I shunted so we had no prize money So then the hotel owner was not very happy, but he basically then said okay off you go back to Austria (laughs) So which we did and on the airport we got very hungry and we had no money no breakfast We found enough little coins between the three of us to buy one big Mac and then we asked the Big Mac to be shared, and then a nice employee at McDonald's cut the Big Mac in three pieces, and that was the New Zealand trip, but
1: it was such a cool time, Um, and anyway, we survived, so. (laughs) It is amazing, it's it's something you obviously didn't mention then, was you were uh, runner-up in the 89 Austrian Championship in karting, despite your height, Um, and then in Formula Fords, you went in and you won the 92 German Formula Ford Championship. Um, By this stage, compared to your um, contemporaries, you were already very tall. Were were people at this stage saying, Alex, do you think you should maybe think about a career in touring cars or t- or sports cars? Or and and did you you obviously didn't listen to them? But was that something already at that age that people were kind of saying to you in terms of your height?
2: Yeah, uh, from the first day on in motorsport in karting, I was penalized by size and especially back then weight. I was overweight in karting. Later on, I was overweight in Formula One as well. For Uh, one particular season but uh, yeah Uh, but I said anyway I'm here I want to try and uh, every person who I've met until I've been in F1 said it's like you will not make it in F1 because people will not make a chassis for you which they had to do many teams later but then if someone tells me that I'm even more eager
1: to go and (laughs) succeed Um, so yeah Yeah. and uh, you were saying before we came on air that actually there was a BMW drive that uh, you, you might have got if you actually fit into the, fit into the monocoque um, just tell us a bit about that and then who got the drive and, and, yeah. and what happened there.
2: yeah we spoke about uh, uh, size because you're also tall uh, so you understand what it means we're, B- we're actually both normal it's just these two are very yeah, short yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly sorry P 45 in the post yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so there was in all my career of course I had difficulties with weight and fitting but it was one particular drive it really didn't work out because i didn't fit the chassis and that was with sauber when they were with bmw Um, i went there over midnight to check that i fit in because it was late in the design stage of the car and they have already done the crash test and i didn't fit and they couldn't modify the chassis in time for me to race and that race seat became then robert kovitzers who i I made i made him aware of my difficulties is a little bit smaller than me so he just made sure he fits and says yes it's okay and then he had a good career there so um indirectly I helped him but I just literally didn't fit and couldn't drive the car
4: can I ask quickly, the, 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 you must have then a, a real insight into not only the, the, the height issues, but the weight issue with uh, being a driver, and obviously a couple of years or so ago, um, the weight of a Formula 1 driver in particular was, was in all of the headlines and rumors of people passing out. What, what was your assessment of, or what is your assessment of pressure on driver weight in, in Formula 1 at the moment? Yeah,
2: that's an interesting one. Because in theory, motorsport is actually a fantastic role model for other sports, where It doesn't matter how tall, how small, how heavy you are. We include the driver's weight since, I think, 20-odd years into the overall performance weight. So it shouldn't matter if there wouldn't be uh, technical meetings where engineers decide over rules for the next few years. And then most most of the times I find them very optimistic in terms of how heavy or light the cars will be. And then they're usually heavier than the sink. And then that leaves very little room for driver weight. And that's what happened the last few years with especially the curse uh, technology, hybrid technology coming in. That instead of being quite relaxed with 80 or 90 kilos of potential driver weight, it shrunk down to 70 and that means everyone has to kind of be ultra light. And then we had these stories like Hülkenberg, et cetera, but also myself back in the Benetton days, then you're overweight. And if you're overweight, let it be two kilos or 12 kilos, whatever it is, that's extra ballast you carry against the other world's best drivers. So that's just not going to work. You're not gonna run a marathon with a rucksack and think you can win it. And and that's more or less what overweight means for a driver.
1: God, if I was gonna get down to 70 kilos, I'd, I'd actually have to chop off a leg, <laughs> <laughs> or both. Actually, there's no way I'd ever get down to that. Or you leave <laughs> the wallet <at> aside. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> um, so I'd obviously sports cars has been a huge part of your career, um, but your taste of sports cars came quite early, with the Nürburgring 24 hours. Um, how old were you, how did that drive come about? And how old were you then? Because it, it was very early on in your motorsport career, wasn't it? Yeah, super early. Uh,
2: God, forgot if I was twi- 18 or 19, but it was very early, and the mighty Nürburgring, the Green Hell, as uh, Jackie Stewart calls it, um was an amazing experience. I mean, what a race it is. I drove in a Porsche, had experienced teammates. Uh, one of my teammates uh, was a long-term friend uh, as well, who now designs most of the racetrack, who so is again a competitor in my other business, Hermann Tilke. But we had a really cool race, and I love endurance racing, to be honest. And, but the real first love for motors, for sports cars particularly, came when I was... Eleven, I went to a motor show, and there was this group C of Walter Lechner, and uh, my father knew Walter, and Walter asked me, young boy, ah, you want to sit in my car? And then I sat in this uh, 962 Porsche. They closed the door, and I was inside this cockpit, and suddenly it made like a click, and it's like I love it, and that that was the uh, love I still carry to sports cars. Because I think the shape is sexy, the racing is heroic, and it's so authentic in what it is, it's just a crazy idea of man and machine racing over 24 hours in this ultra cool looking cars and that's what um, made me always really in love with endurance racing.
3: Do you, feel, do you feel that the the balance of the sport is slightly wrong at the moment in that Formula 1 drivers often have to drive percentage races to make the tyres last or have been doing recent years and Le Mans which always used to be a percentage management race now with all the electronic guardian angels and things the cars can go flat out i mean the almost the kind of profiles have reversed haven't they a little bit profiles
2: did reverse somehow um i don't think it is the only problem well let's let's uh, maybe not use the word problem because uh, could be misinterpreted, but uh yeah sports car racing now is definitely not looking after anything is flat out from start to go yet we have um to manage the energy levels with uh, quite a complex um uh regulations, but we are not selling it as complex we are just selling it and it is uh technology will will which will be used later on on the road, mm. so it's yeah. very relevant uh despite it being actually quite complex um but very cool, actually, once you race it and drive it and it's flat out, uh, then a 24-hour race becomes a real challenge.
3: And it's also very interesting that Toyota, previously Audi, um, and, <coughs> excuse me, uh, you know, they've, they've come up with very different, and Porsche, very different solutions to arrive at more or less the same kind of performance level. It's fantastic.
2: No, it's it's awesome. But you will see engineering, uh, um, let it be Japanese, German or whatever, of course, with a large British influence of so many engineers in there, um, they are narrowing down now to all a very similar solution, having started on a quite different uh, uh, starting points. Uh, but that's beautiful, because if these manufacturers wouldn't compete, the development circle would be way slower, because only recently with uh, a top guy in Silicon Valley, he asked, so what could we learn from motorsport? Because he's quite anti-motorsport. I said, like, the development speed of motorsport is significantly faster because of competition. So if I would be a Silicon Valley company, even if I'm not interested at all in in competition and measuring against each other, I would still do competition within the team, within your own organization, to have faster development circles. Because if we humans get competitive, we develop much faster than with, without having pressure or competition.
3: So do you think in the same way then that, I mean, I believe that having that competition in Formula E will in the same way that mobile phone batteries used to be this big and now this big and last for days, that Formula E will help us to develop road car batteries that are actually have a decent range and, you know, can be interchanged quite quite easily.
2: Yeah, I think Formula E is, is um, at the moment, the e-mobility is still a niche, but it's amazing how it's growing so it's definitely ticked the right time and it's at the right time and space so that's very cool uh, but don't forget also battery technology has started already in F1 quite a few years ago with Curse then it was dropped but it's it's back and in the World Endurance Championship as well so mobility is about re- recovering energy and dealing uh, with energy and that's coming into motorsport and we can and maybe shall not stop that uh because it's technology, we have to deal with it. And in motorsport, we have to make sure is how can we make it lighter, faster, safer.
1: I d- motorsport is an incredible proving ground and, and a way to p- advance it. When you look at the very early curves or the first curve system compared to one 12 months later. And just the size of it with the same amount of power is, is I mean, it's, it's amazing, the, the change. Um, I'm d- going to rewind a little bit to sort of the 90s, obviously, you went into Formula 3, just came to sort of a hair's whisker of the title, um, but you then went into international touring cars um, with Opel. How, how did that come about? And I, I seem to remember reading somewhere that you you really enjoyed that. It was a great fun kind of period of your motorsport career.
2: Yeah, uh, after Formula 4, where I won the German championship and the European Cup, um, I had no money. Then um, and, and a third of a Big yeah. Mac. <laughs> 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 then um, found a uh, racing season, which was half Germany, half Austria, in, in F3 with Dr. Marco. Um, because he, in the end, said, Look, you, you dominated Formula Ford. I take a risk here. I'll run you. That didn't end up that well. Got a chance with uh, Opel in F3 for very low money. Nearly won the championship unfortunately with a stupid crash I made I lost the championship, Jörg Müller won it but then again had no money and then um, said okay I will be a driver instructor in my father's uh, road safety school which is a great job, good stuff and last minute someone from Opel called me and says ah look we have this two year old car, we need to run eight cars in the championship Opel Austria would be excited if you uh, race Austrian TV will come with you would you race I said yes please <laughs> <laughs> but I knew it's a really old car and I will have no testing very little development but any, honestly I had nothing else to do at the time which was I was happy about of course not happy that the car was old but it was a decisive uh, moment because I was put in team Joost and then uh, I got a great relationship with uh, with Reinhold Joost and the team uh, managers who then used me for a test in the Le program and that kickstart my career, but
1: maybe that's not where you want no, to go the question. No, I was, I was literally <laughs> about, to go, I was about to come on to that because it's funny, I'd, I didn't realize that that Opel ITC drive kind of came about just, just like that. Um, because without that, obviously, as you said, you wouldn't have got this opportunity, which I guess, w- is it fair to say, kind of changed your motorsport career on this, this one um, Le Mans test. Because uh, you went to Paul Ricard, I think, in the dark, having never driven there, um, and then was faster than everyone else? Is that, is <laughs> <laughs> am I rem- remembering correctly? Yeah, that was the highlight of my career. <laughs> 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 maybe the only one. Uh, no,
2: what happened is that uh, one of the, I always went through years to the factory and said, ah, I want to see the sports car, you know, the prototypes. So they realized I have this love. And then Reinhold just found it quite interesting and maybe sweet, I don't, I don't know what he thought. But one day he called me and says, hey Alex, One of my drivers, Pierlu Cimardini, he has fever and I'm running this endurance test. So can you help us? I I said, well, I'm already there. So jumped in the car, literally drove there. We made a seat uh, at eight or nine in the evening and I was supposed to start in the morning. But then the drivers, the car was reliable. They felt tired. And then they said, man, you have to drive now. It was uh, one in the morning. Never been on the track, never driven sport car, it was even on the right side, so the wrong side for us Europeans. And they described me the track, and for some magic reasons, in the third lap, I've set the fastest lap time of the tests. And there were very <laughs> fast drivers there. So then they started checking the data, if I did a shortcut, <laughs> <laughs> and they asked me if I'm completely stupid. I said, no, well, you said turn one is flat, and senior is flat, so why should I lift? <laughs> And then, it's <laughs> like a tree racing driver, <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, anyway, also the testing, I did no mistake. They asked me for a second test. I Again, was um, uh, same lap times, maybe the fastest, or just hundreds of being fastest. And that led to an offer for me to race in Lima. And then we won the Lima race in my first attempt, and uh, that definitely changed my career. And it meant from now on, I need no more money
1: to race. Yeah, because it's, it's worth saying that you you had to bring budget, even in those early stages of your sports car career, didn't you? It wasn't it wasn't come and come and have a drive we'll we'll pay you.
2: <laughs> well, it was supposed to be like this, but then three weeks before, Le Mans Reinhold just called me, probably because he's seen the the costs for his private chat to Le Mans. <laughs> says he needs fifteen thousand German marks, which is eight thousand euros. So actually nowadays you think it's nothing, but for me at the time it was like, oh, that's a deal breaker. I cannot do it. And he said, well, you have three weeks. Let's try. So I ran around of uh, whole Austria to find a sponsor. I found some sp- one sponsor who is a clothes company and also imported skateboards. He said, look, I can give you half of the money because I like to help young people. And then I found a bank who gave me the other half of the other four thousand euros. And so I, I brought the money to the race. And uh, with a cheque, and I raced, and uh, it was a very good investment.
1: Amazing. Amazing. So,
4: uh, so you borrowed half of the money from the bank. You, went, you yes. went to get a loan to get that drive. Yes, exactly, yeah. And I presume you paid it back now.
1: I did pay it back, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. there's actually a, a hotel <laughs> manager in, in New Zealand who's still wanting paid back <laughs> as well. So, oh, dear. Um, <laughs> but hopefully he doesn't listen to this. Well, hello to our Kiwi listeners. Um, <clears throat> so, but in that Le Mans, the, 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 one, the race you won, you could go a lap longer, couldn't you? And why? Why was that? Why? How did that come back? Because I, I just all I read was that you know, we could do a lap longer. How and and why? Uh, you should be interrogated because you're preparing really well. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> My P forty five is on yeah. hold for oh, now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just
4: just for a day or two. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, so when we did these car tests, uh, um, I, st- I studied technology of car engineering and car design. I spoke with the Porsche guys and because porsche was our engine it was a semi-factory deal it was uh, privately run but with factory support and we we then discussed a lot and i said why do we not do special fuel saving maps and we try to save power on certain gears which we only use in corners uh, and then only on this now you can easily program that back then the technology wasn't that far so we managed to do that actually but funnily enough the Porsche engineers did not inform the Porsche company about it and they all thought we can only do 12 laps and we only did 12 laps in all the testing and practice sessions because we knew that's the only way to beat the factory Porsche the the mighty GT1 Porsche Um, that we go a lap longer and we only opened that special trick in the race it still meant we had to drive very fuel efficient but it gave us that extra lap which then cuts down quite a few pit stops
1: over hours, and um that made us win the race i love stories like that i think it's i think it's great um now as you said the winning le Mans changed things dramatically um, you were then approached by flavio briatori um for a test with the benetton um t- tell us about that because again uh, did, was it a test or did you did he call you up for a race seat or what, how, how how did it come about
2: uh, before I went to Le Mans the whole story I was so desperate to race anything because I had basically nothing it was just coinciding when I got the phone call to race that uh, Opel I tried to have a meeting with Flavion and I succeeded and um, because he knew that I won races in, in Formula 3 and fought for the championship but He saw I have no more really sexy sponsorship behind me. I wasn't that attractive. But anyway, in the very short meeting, he said, So what are you doing next? And I said, Well, in uh, one month's time, I go to Lima. He said, Basically, I guess to end the meeting, I don't know. He said, "Ah, If you win Lima, I will offer you a test. And literally on Monday, after I won Lima, there was a fax. (laughs) <laughs> arriving at home and saying okay uh, at this period of the year we offer you a two-day test um, we will be everything and just come and to the test are you willing to do so and yeah of course i was with so he stuck to his word and i had the two days of testing it was a shootout against jano truly physical paul tracy was there and myself of who will get the test and reserve driver seat and then I had a little bit of money saved from working as a road safety instructor and some other willing and dealing. And I took the money, went to David Sears, says, I know you have an old Formula 3000. It's very similar speed to the Formula 1 cars. I need one day of testing in Estoril to get me ready back into single-seater driving. He said, that's not much money, but I will help you. So I paid for that. Uh, to get r- uh, race or single seat of fit. And it was a good investment because, uh, again, I was sitting in the car after two laps. Uh, I was on the base, only a few tenths of the regular drivers and ended up uh, just a tenth behind Gerhard Berger, two tenths faster than Alesi and fastest of the juniors. And that immediately gave me the um, testing and reserve driver contract with Benetton at the time.
1: And is, am I right in thinking that that's, um, <coughs> that's kind of where you're... T- I Did I read that uh, your feedback in that test had a bearing? I seem to remember you saying that your feedback was very well received, and what what was this feedback? And for someone who hadn't driven a Formula 1 car before, how could you give the the (laughs) feedback? Um,
2: I'm always very technical orientated, but I was a bit lucky at that time with Opel. We did a lot of work on differential and a lot of work on power steering, and that was the two main subjects of this test. And uh, there was Pat Simmons, um, who is a long time a friend of mine, but kind of a mentor as well, because I learned a lot from him. And Alan Bermain, who is now at uh, uh, Lotus Renault um, and long time in Enstone. And with these two, I had a lot of conversations. And then I was just driving and supplying feedback how I feel it and what I have also seen with Opel, to be honest, of how we could improve things. And it worked out really well and they've been very impressed in parallel with the good lap times they said uh, that's exactly what we need and because my english wasn't that good i need to s- i was sticking to very short feedback but where i was very comfortable that they understand exactly what i mean and it turned out that this is what exactly they were looking for and that Pat uh said to me after i think already my third run is i think you will get this job because you deliver exactly what we were asking for.
4: Your, um, your understanding of the technical side of, of, of driving, w- was that something that came naturally to you as you were growing up through through karting? Or is it something that you consciously felt you had to apply to boost your natural talent level? H- how did that work together? Some guys just rely on talent and forget the technical side. Yeah. So I need to define a little bit
2: when we speak about technical understanding. I think it's not really necessary that you understand vehicle dynamics, aerodynamics, tire science, and so on. It helps if you do understand, but what most of the engineers said is was my strength is that I can speak in. I can deliver the message as they are, as they want it, because in the end of the day, a driver describes emotions and feelings. And that's something which an engineering brain cannot process. The engineering brain wants facts, figures, and pre-digested into the right message. And I think that's what I understood. And that comes basically from being a driver trainer instructor. And my my dad uh, made the global leading company in driver training, and I worked as an instructor. And I d- I picked up how to communicate what is oversteer, what is understeer, how deploy, what's my influence on any vehicle dynamic issues. Mm. And that gave me an advantage, definitely.
4: I can imagine how, uh, you know, your first Formula 1 test, so many drivers could have just been completely overwhelmed by their emotions at that point. But you managed, I guess you managed to control that and allow the technical mm. feedback to, to shine through. Yeah. yeah,
2: thank God, otherwise I wouldn't <laughs> be here. Because <laughs> I realized this is one of my key strengths. Yeah. Uh, which then later gave me lots of contracts also, uh, very well paid contracts to actually be there to develop uh, the product, which is the race car.
3: Sure. Did, do you think it actually helped in an ironic way that your your English at the time was relatively limited, so you had to kind of keep things short and simple? Uh,
2: yes, absolutely, indeed, uh, because it's too easy to get lost in long stories, like you can see already and listen. <laughs> 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 you <laughs> to three motorsport <laughs> journalists who are renowned for never yeah, writing today. We're here all <laughs> <or> night. <nine. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> So, but indeed, because you need to put the package into exactly what matters. And that's also a message to all the young drivers. is like, you know, don't speak a story, speak what needs to be said, especially during a test or during a practice. Later on, when there is time, engineers also love to hear the long story,
1: but uh, package it short and precise. Uh, we're going to come on to your, your Formula One debut and then also Formula One career. Um, and we've got loads of readers' questions, so we're going to come to those in a second. However, before we go anywhere, um, Simon, have you, have you got a Valentine's Day present yet for your wife?
3: strangely strangely not no no no, well
1: i i I have i have good news because um if you go to shop.mercedes-benz.com and you use the code be my valentine it's very weird looking simon in the eye when i say that um use be my valentine as a code you get 10 percent off um loads of stuff from aftershave to bracelets to to everything like that so do go to shop.mercedes-benz.com um there's loads of stuff on there and you're not too late for valentine's day so don't forget everyone you've been warned um, right, the, the Formula One debut, um, it's, this was by no means a normal debut in, kind of in any sense, because it was a late call to go and see Flavio, which I think you replied and said, I-, I can't right now, not knowing what the call was about. And then you, when you did finally go there, um, you had to learn the track via Autosport's map of it. Um, t- t- tell, me about, tell me about the call from Flavio and, and telling him to not pissed off, but sorry, I can't <laughs> now. <run. laughs> so that was in the, the year where I was
2: test driver. I did a lot of testing, uh, but also uh, um, I raced for Mercedes in the sports car championship in the, in the CLK. CLK, yeah, yeah GT1. Um, so I was on the way to the Nürburgring, um, we had the chance to win the World Championship race event. I got a phone call on the Wednesday from uh, Flavio's B Rosella, and she said, ah, Flavio wants you in England. Uh, can you come? I said, no, I cannot come. I have my Mercedes gear on. I'm on the way to a race. Sorry, I uh, has to wait. She said, okay. So five minutes later the telephone rings. She's like, no, can you please come to England? I said, no, I'm at the airport. I'm checking in. Sorry, I cannot come. 30 seconds later I get the phone call and it didn't need a telephone because i could hear the screaming <laughs> over the channel <laughs> <laughs> uh of flavio in his typical english which is hard to understand <laughs> and i can't <laughs> say the f word of you so come we here yes no, no. yeah, yeah. <laughs> beep and so i understood okay i have to come so then I uh, changed my flight went to england um and went to his place and basically he told me that i have to to take this ticket, it was a Concorde ticket, fly to Canada and race the car. And I said, okay, um, we still now should call Mercedes to inform them that I'm not there, but the contract says if I'm substituting Formula One takes priority. So he did this phone call, I took the Concorde ticket, jumped in the plane, and then I thought, oh, hang on a minute, it's Canada, it's a racetrack, I don't know, I don't even know if it's clockwise, anti-clockwise. (laughs) What what is it? (laughs) Then thank God for (laughs) autosport. And you can beat uh, that out too, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, sorry, <laughs> Don't worry.
1: and that's how I went to Canada. Yeah, um, and and in the race you were running to, uh, as high as fourth, and then dropped back to sixth. And but that you were there, or thereabouts, but when your drive shaft went, um, just talk <laughs> me through the emotions of get, of being told that you're going to make your Formula One debut, and then to be for it to be going so well, and then yeah. for that to happen. So
2: it was quite an interesting race because on the of course. It was overwhelming, but um, uh, it was cool. On the start, just before you're not allowed to touch the car, mechanic turned around and broke the mirror off. But not the mirror which I need to see. I don't care about that. But it had the telemetry antenna inside back in the day. So the cable was damaged. So I could see in Pat Simmons' eyes, which got pretty big. It's like, this is a problem. (laughs) So then they taped. And somehow managed that this mirror stays on my Benetton. So a little bit of stress, but never mind. I got going and then I found myself in a good position. I overtook a few guys, um, running force, knowing my strategy could actually bring me onto the podium. Bang, my um, uh, fire extinguisher goes and it sprayed all into my visor so I couldn't see. So then I went off uh, because I couldn't see anything. And until the whole spraying was finished, my tires got dirty, so I lost a few places. As you mentioned, I dropped back to six. But anyway, I kept going again on up to fourth, And then uh, I had the only technical failure that year with a drive shaft breaking. And I was a little bit annoyed, of course, at the time, but even looking back is how the strategy unfolded
1: I would have been on the podium and it would have been pretty cool start of a uh, Formula one career yes. But despite that d- didn't Jean Todd come up to you at the end of the race and st- And start talking and say how good a drive you done.
2: Yeah, it was on the way home in the plane uh, he was He f- knew I was on the same plane back to Paris because I went to the test in Polrica So he came we chatted he was a Ferrari team boss at the time and uh, you know when just a year before you don't even know if you are doing anything in motorsport to then have a situation where the top dog team boss is coming and asking okay how long is your contract and telling you he watched the the lap times and he understood all the issues i had during the race you know that suddenly you're on cloud
1: seven so it's interesting that how much attention team bosses pay to pay to other drivers isn't it um i did promise that i'd i'd answer ask some of the readers questions i got one here talking about your time at Benetton from William Oldacre. Um, And he says, hi, Alex, I trawled through some old magazines a week ago and found some interesting comments you made about your time at Benetton, saying that you were grateful that they'd given you your F1 break, but that in the end, they made your life a misery. (laughs) Can you elaborate on your difficulties with the team? We have quite direct (laughs) questions from our readers. Yeah, but uh, (laughs) maybe I'll just did direct uh, comments (laughs) after two
2: coffees. What was difficult in the end of my Benetton days was, and I've mentioned it in other interviews, that um, that was a period of time where Flavio left and came back. I had no management contract. I was put on the spot. I stood my grounds. And that was a lot of political s- fights in the background, which if you're talking of sport and as an sp- athlete, all you should do is focus on the driving and not trying to survive in it team atmosphere which was pretty ruthless back in the day it also beat other drivers like Fisichella, Julie who had similar experience but much more than this is I was overweight and back in the day I was you know you're told you're not allowed to uh, say that in the media Uh, there back then also no one really understood okay what what is overweight because nowadays everyone knows, it's 10 kilo in the from One car is 4 tenths of a second. If someone is 10 kilo overweight, we all feel sorry for him. Back then, not allowed to speak about it. Very few journalists picked it up. But you can't materialize it, and it it, it was. Uh, I, I look back and it's like, well, of course, no one designed the car to be on purpose overweight, but it was. And my average. Uh, lap time deficit to Giancarlo Fisichella was two and a half tenths over the season, but I was uh, average 12 kilo overweight. So if you would recalculate it, like in the first two seasons, especially the first season, I would have been ahead of Giancarlo. And we would have been again a super close match. And that was uh, jeopardized by the overweight. And no one really saw it. And then again with a little bit of a fallout with Flavio at the time. Uh, s- put my former 1 career to a halt in that moment and that's why I was uh, quite disappointed and
1: just emotional and made such comments because mm. well in t- in the year 2000 that was when s- when he brought Button in um, and then you ended up with a five year testing contract for McLaren it, uh, why did that happen is that because it, when Button came in there was so little left or do why d- why go to McLaren on, on a full testing contract um,
2: I played a little bit casino but also the logic behind was is that I wanted to go into a territory where it has nothing to do with uh, anyone I had to deal before in the first three years at Benetton, um, and um, Mercedes, together with Ron, offered me a very interesting contract, and I said, you know what, I go testing there. I convinced them that I'm good. Maybe they give me a chance to race. So. I I did this move. I don't regret it. It was two times extremely close to race for them full-time. But then uh, they decided to take Kimi instead of me uh, and one time renew one of the existing drivers. Yeah, never mind. That's, uh, That's life. But the decision was based on just getting into a neutral team where I can just focus
1: again on the driving. Um, I, this seems like a good idea to talk about your different coloured boots, um, because <laughs> there is a question. Uh, someone I can't find it right now. Who um, wants? To, uh, someone wants to know the story behind the different coloured boots. So I'm, I'm saying we want to mention it now uh, because I think you were banned when you were at McLaren from having different <laughs> coloured boots, um, and they then came back. So, so tell <laughs> us sort of what when, happened. I wonder whose decision that was. Oh, I don't know. He might have, might have been called Ron. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: yeah. You no, know, actually, Ron didn't ask me personally. He sent someone first. He's like. <laughs> if you would potentially have a McLaren contract would you be okay with having two colored boots and I said yes of course (laughs) I'm not actually I'm not superstitious about that how it started was in New Zealand when I raced in Formula Ford I only found the red and the blue shoe I raced with it I won the race so my team boss said you have to keep it but I found out that the media instantly focuses on it and I had much more media return and again as a young guy all you want is media return that you can please the sponsors and find more money so I, I clicked and it's like okay that's something which is just a little marketing things. Simple and minds,
1: journalists, really, isn't it? <laughs> oh, but different of boots. Uh, I mean,
4: Rossi did the same, didn't he? Yeah. He recognised, Valentino Rossi recognised early in his career that if he changed his helmet colour or if he had dressed as a chicken after a race or whatever, that he would attract the press. He obviously had the talent to, to go with it, you know, to generate that. But um, wh- one thing I was going to ask, and, and I'm not quite sure how to phrase it without it sounding insulting, um, at what point in a racing driver's career does he or she recognise that they're getting slower? You know, it's <laughs> very simple.
2: <laughs> the stopwatch doesn't lie. <laughs> you know. So it's very, very simple. Um but um in the term of a sportsman's career you always have some up and downs. You whenever you realize you're not on top of your game, either someone tells you or you have better you find out yourself is okay, what do I have to change that my mind is sharp again? that's the key f- to become a real champion or to become just someone who was close but didn't succeed too. that's what i consider myself and i knew that on a good day uh in f1 i could do sensational and uh, stand up and beat uh lap times of someone like Raikkonen and Hakkinen, etc but i was never consistent enough and that's especially for racing tuning my mind and uh Now I don't want to get too philosophical but I looked into this very carefully because I never had that before Mm -hmm. in my racing but because I was always so self-confident. But then when you're in F1 and suddenly so much happens to you and you're still a spring chicken in a political world where it's not only about a goal which you can chase, it's suddenly you're there and you have to succeed against many top talents of many generations Um, you need much more than just a little bit of self-confidence and that was knocked in my case and I could not recover from that but the great champions they make sure that each weekend they are up top of the game and they win multiple world championship and uh, that's what in F1 I didn't have. I then came to sports car racing and my natural love was so good that every weekend I didn't even have a doubt in the abilities and it worked out very well.
3: Can I ask you? You mentioned doing great things on certain days in Formula One. I ask you about the 1998 Monaco Grand Prix. I remember the late great writer Alan Henry, uh, I think he was in writing an auto course. He said it was as though Michael Schumacher had come up, and he was found himself. He, he was racing against himself because you were that day. I mean, you were. It was it was a fantastic battle. You just kept him behind all the time, interlocking wheels. He wasn't getting through. And then later on you had the big accident in the tunnel. But that was a a real kind of moment when a lot of people went, wow.
2: Yeah, so I'm still very annoyed about that race. Simply because I wasn't actually racing, Michael. I came, I was on a different strategy. Mm. So I was fighting for P2 in the race and he was fifth or seventh. And I ran up into a train of cars I had to lap. And he was with fresh tires behind me. But pit stop corrected, he was way behind behind me. and then I thought, OK, um, I think he will not overtake me. And if I take Löw's hairpin from the outside, I might be able to overtake one of the lap cars. He dived in. And when he dived in, I should have stayed calm. and said, I'm not racing him. OK, uh, it will delay me a little bit. But by the time my lap times were well on, on target for P2, behind Hakkinen, But then my fuse clicked into macho mode, and I said, actually, I'm not going to let that German guy just (laughs) overtake me. (laughs) You didn't call him a German guy at
3: the time, did you? That's Uh, not the phrase you used (laughs) at the time.
2: Not inside the helmet, Uh, but that stays private. Um, But uh, we were friends at the time, I have to say. So I said, no, I'm going to fight back, which it looked cool on telly, but actually was just a simple, Mm. stupid move because with all the wheel banging, I damaged my rear suspension, which then just later what, collapsed caused, uh, caused, uh, caused, the, caused the accident and took me away. A great result. Um, and I, I regret that moment where my brain, my fuse just
1: snapped. Well, to fast forward to 2005 um, and Juan Pablo Montoya injured his shoulder playing tennis on a motorbike um, and you were drafted in for that uh, f- for the race at Imola. Um, you know, we were talking about your height earlier. That was a r- you can hardly you can only turn on some corners with one hand, um, yet you still you finished on the podium after Boston was disqualified. Um, uh, talk us a bit about tell us a bit about racing at Emilia in that McLaren with with, with one hand basically because it doesn't sound like the yeah. most fun thing you can <laughs> I, do. I want
2: to <laughs> uh, say how the whole thing came up that I didn't fit because maybe that's interesting and uh, uh, not too many people know. I actually in 2004. I had a great offer from uh, Ford and Jaguar to join them and we agreed the terms and it just needed the signature of Ron and McLaren on the release papers and throughout the design phase of the McLaren for 2005 that went on negotiated and then when the designer uh, Mike Coughlin asked the team management do I have to design the car for Alex or not, he was told "No." we are just about to release Alex into this contract. Uh, Three-year contract, uh, good payment, secured by Detroit. So, a well, nice, nice little contract. So then Mike went on and said, okay, I don't have to design this car for this tall, lanky Austrian. Uh, I can make it nice and small. That's what he did. But then I wasn't released, because uh, the shareholders decided, no, actually, we prefer to keep him as an asset. And I had no saying this, but then I was suddenly back, Montoya injured the shoulder, the first racer didn't fit, so uh, my one of my best friends then got the drive uh, for the race in Bahrain, Pedro de la Rosa, but by contract I had the first right on a substitute role. So then they made an incredible effort for a lot of money, working flat out, uh, which now much later I appreciate what effort they went through to fit me into the car but I still only could drive one-handed around hairp- uh, right-hand hairpins because uh, my hands got stuck on the legs and um, anyway I, I knew I had to take the chance um, and can't wait for another race and give Pedro another chance so in the end I, I realized I must go into this car they've done the effort of just about
1: legal to, to race this car and
2: it worked out all right.
1: Because you then you then went to Williams as well, um, <coughs> and it was the move there. Was that because, uh, was that partly because of Frank and Patrick? Because they're sort of real racers, Frank and Patrick. I think everyone has a soft spot for, for Williams in Formula One. Is was that part of the reason behind m- moving there? Um,
2: while we just spoke about the race in Imola, at the same time I had an offer from uh, um, Newman Haas to go to race IndyCars, again top contract. But I had this race and I said, no, I'm not going. Uh, because I was told I will also race the next race. So I was already the year before, designed out of the car, then was told I was doing the next race. And I took it all personally, but I didn't do the next race. So I got so cranky and I was a little bit uh, too aggressive then maybe in some of the meetings that we realized, okay, in 2005, after five years, uh, it's maybe better for me to move on and change team and I'm not proud of that moment I'm just telling you honestly how it was because I now understand fully that as a team they have to look after their interest and they didn't do anything against me uh, but back back then I didn't understand that so I, I said no I need to go and, and move on and that was the natural end of the contract um, so I spoiled the American contract with not doing it because of the Imola race but then not uh, renewing with, or they not uh, renewing with me for a future relationship, I had to go and look for something else. And really, really late in the season, I had uh, options to go to DTM and so on, but I still prefer to be single seater. I got a phone call from Frank Williams, and he said, look, you may be not that interested, but um having a test cockpit. I want you uh, to help us develop the car. Can you come? So I said, yeah, okay, Frank, I'll sit in the plane, I'm I'm with you tomorrow morning. Um, And that was the start of my relationship
1: with uh, Williams team. And uh, Am I right in thinking that you went to go meet him and then he said he'd call you back with an offer and you went off to go and buy parsnips for your Christmas dinner? And he called you whilst you were buying said parsnips. Where do you get parsnip? this stuff from? <laughs> from from <laughs> Motorsport. This, that was in Motorsport Magazine. It's available at all good box, bookstores, by the way. But it shows uh,
3: how much progress you make, because you could afford to buy parsnips. It wasn't a third of a parsnip, it was a whole parsnip, maybe yeah. more.
1: Well, you need to know I'm
2: married to an S-expert, uh, to Julia, and obviously I'm from Austria, I don't even know what parsnips are. But uh, our Christmas uh, meal includes parsnips, and then it was uh, two weeks before Christmas when I came to see Frank. And he told me, look, in two hours, we come back with you because we didn't agree on the terms he offered. I said, I, I'm not coming with these terms. And he said, okay, give me two hours. So I went to Wantage in the supermarket to try to find the basnips. <laughs> and he called me and I said, Frank, sorry, I, I can only come back in half an hour. I'm just buying basnips. And he was laughing for a long time. <laughs> <wasn't
4: it? laughs> we've, this is the podcast. We've covered everything from Concord. To pass yeah. via has ET. this ever happened before via ET? Yeah. It's, it's fabulous. Um, I'm going to jump in though. Yeah, let's do. Um, IndyCar. So you had an offer from Newman Haas. So had you had you tested a car at this point? Have you ever tested an IndyCar? How did that? How did that no. come about? And, and at this time, the IndyCars were. I
2: mean, now they are. Uh, they are always cool. But at this time, I think was the peak of of IndyCar. It was. They were cool and they were just everything I admired from racing, also oval racing, um, and. Before that, I always said, I really want to go at one point to the States to do these races. Uh, So it was not easy to decide, um, to say no to this offer. Um, But I did, because I thought racing in Imola and with Juan Pablo's injury, I might get more races.
1: Didn't work out, but it's one of the decisions you have to make. And I've got a question here, actually, from Matt, um, who wants to know what the differences were in the working environment at mclaren and williams i mean obviously both extremely successful grand prix teams with uh, with loads of history um but they're very quite different teams was that apparent on the inside um yes and no in the end of the day there's
2: one parallel between all motorsport organizations i've worked with is they're engineering and process driven so and that in the end Makes them all the same because they look at something, they analyze it, they improve. They look at something, they analyze, they improve. You always try to find the weakest link and improve it, and that's uh, a beautiful uh, process and evolution which works so well in in all these top teams. However, there is of course a difference, but that's more to do with the characters and the behavior of the team bosses, uh, you know, and. Yes, uh, Frank Williams uh, is very different to a Flavio Priatore or Ron Dennis. Um, but in the end, for the real working, it,
1: they are more or less the same. And, and it was at Williams that you, you finally got your race seat alongside Nico Rosberg. But I do not you weren't very happy in that race seat, were you? And you I mean, you, from the outside, you would have thought, you know, you've been testing at McLaren one off race, testing at Williams, and now you, you've got this race seat. Um, what, what was going wrong? Why, why weren't things clicking? Um, how much time have we got left
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're, we're okay we, t- we can run over so as, long as, as long as you're um, not going
2: to miss your flight no nah, don't worry so when I was testing you know with all the few years before at McGarren, I was so keen to come back racing I was sometimes close and I kind of with this fight burned out a little bit mentally uh, and I thought ah, when I come back in the race car, I will get back this fire and hunger like I was used to from since my entire sporting career. And as a third driver with, uh, an on top of it, with tires which were super sticky on the front, didn't give you much understeer and you could chuck the car into corners like crazy. That was my style. I came to race in 2007. They changed the tires to a super weak front tire. Uh, uh so it was only under still Limited and completely not my style with And on top I didn't get this thousand percent hunger which I thought I will and at this point of the uh, of of my career so like I started saying hey why is that? You're back to where you wanted to be after quite a fight and it's not coming. So then these two things Made me a little bit like not not unhappy, but thinking okay You must check because if you compete against the best in the world If you are not a hundred percent each every second uh, It's an uphill battle and that's what I found myself in so on some tracks. It worked very well Especially in race stream my average times was quicker than Nico and together, we managed to get a lot of points and finish fourth uh, in the constructors, which was the best result by far for Williams at this period of their existence. But I demand for myself more than 99.9%. And that wasn't there. And I simply think I was it, it was mainly down to me, A, for not being able to change my style to fit the tires. But why is because I think I was too burned out from all the years of fighting to come back into a seat, and I was hoping for the kickstart to happen automatically and didn't.
3: How early in that season was it, 2007? How early in the season was it that you it actually dawned on you? Thought, heck, this this isn't going to work.
2: Um, uh, early, I would say. Um, but then, of course, you f- you fight on, and it's not that I just give up and walk home. Of course, I was fighting, but. Uh, throughout mid-season around canada you then realize okay this is much more uphill struggle than i was hoping uh we're trying to find excuse uh, so did i but in the end i was relatively honest to myself i spoke also with frank it coincided also that f- the team knew that if they want to come back to the front they need uh way more budget then uh, of course there was katsuki nagashima also coming with some support from the engine supplier from toyota Uh, But we had a very open chat about all of this and then said, okay, um, I will move on into the place I love, which was sports car racing. And uh, he can go and chase some budget and change his uh, team driver pairing. Uh, That was the decision, Wallace.
1: You mentioned going into sports cars there. Um, What was it like going back to Le Mans again for the first time in so long in in 2008 and um, it's the cars must have been so different to what you'd used you know when you first won Le Mans um, did you feel as though you were you, in a sense you had kind of come home and when you first went out at Le Mans? No it, I, it,
2: I felt like an alien actually <laughs> um, because this uh, it was with uh, the diesel Beugeot lap times were very fast and after my years in F1 where uh, we drivers complain about bumps and curbs and all sorts of things because we want everything to perfection by nature and the industry gives you perfection then you go back to Le Mans where there's a bit of grass on the track and dirt and no one cares about it and yet you go 260 through the Bosch corners with 2 meters of runoff Uh, the first few laps uh, I think I had to change my underwear (laughs) Uh, because your teammates pile through with 20-30 k's more where you do a little lift they just go flat out and it was a wake-up call and uh, okay it only took me a few laps to come back but it's like wow you know it's a different kettle of fish which um, was surprisingly cool and refreshing because then suddenly it was a different world a challenge every time I was sitting in the car I got back this love sensation from my 11 year old dream sitting in that Porsche car and bang the love and the and the ambition and the hunger and everything was back fully kick started automatically and every split second of my sports car driving then
1: i enjoyed now you obviously won it again in in two thousand and nine but i d- just wanted to ask a little bit because you were also testing for Honda at the time with with braun and Fry before it became Braun g p but you were doing thousands of miles of testing for honda you're doing thousands of miles of testing for peugeot um just talk us through a, a sort of normal week because it was ridiculous how many miles you're actually doing
2: yeah it was ridiculous and there was one week which is not normal in no one's life is doing three days of endurance testing with peugeot driving in the car normal road car overnight to barcelona so i tested in Barrica. car Driving overnight to Barcelona to three days of only long runs, unfortunately with heavy fuel and old tires, for Honda, uh, working on the um, race base. Driving again overnight or being driven by a friend because I was already dead into <laughs> uh, the next Porsche endurance session. So I had uh, seven days on the road where I was driving almost every day and every night. I forgot the mileage, but it was <laughs> just insane. <laughs> In a way it was also cool because uh, it's not so many times you yeah. can do that, yeah. you know.
4: Amazing contrast between those cars as well. I mean, how, do you, uh, how did you find yourself flipping into the two different styles required for a high revving Formula 1 car and a relatively low revving endurance car? How, how did you as a driver adapt to that?
2: Uh, by that time of my career was quite easy um, and also the driving style, the tyres we've chosen were very different. I Find it more difficult if cars are very similar and you have to change between them because if they're so far apart um, yeah the, your skills will very quickly adopt if it's very close and it's fine tuning here and there and it's a little bit different then actually you struggle more so um, plus to be honest it wasn't that i had to go out in the first lap prove myself is a new lap record so if i have three four laps to adjust uh, but I, I do remember back in these days when F1 wasn't very powerful that the the diesel torque felt so much stronger and I was a bit disappointed going into the F1 car in terms of power output. <laughs> It's funny yeah, it's to hear that. the
1: idea. A
4: yeah. yeah. diesel <laughs> yeah. sports car, yeah. more impressive than a, a yeah. Formula One car. Yeah. Um,
1: we've, got, we've got time for a few questions, which I'm going to do in a second. But it was around this time in 2008 that you, uh, you drove the doctor's car at Singapore, didn't you? And that, this was obviously what has now become Singapore Gate. Um, and you were quite busy in the doctor's car with, with PK's um, crash or slide off or, or whatever we call it. Um, the local doctor had a few problems, didn't he? <laughs>
2: because we were sitting there and Gary Hartstein was the race doctor and you sit in the medical car obviously hoping that you just sit in the air-conditioned Mercedes car uh, and watching the race on your little screen and then going home because as a medical car driver you just don't want to be in action. And then we hear on the radio crash, driver not moving and then suddenly from just hanging around there, thinking, okay, that's my race weekend Um, when the doctor next to you suddenly puts this face on because he has uh, other radio and then it's like, my god, that's serious and he says, quick, quick, quick and then for me, quick means I go as fast as this car can go which uh, you can debate if I'm talented or not but it was definitely too much for the stomach of the Singaporean (laughs) local doctor who was sitting behind me (laughs) (laughs) so he lost his lunch Filled the car with an interesting but not very pleasant smell. <laughs> Which then, okay, we arrive at the scene of accident. Thank God he was fine and there was no drama. But then after the race, just when the jacket flag had stopped and the last car stopped, you're allowed to get out of the medical car. He came to shake my hands. <laughs> and all I wondered is, oh my God, did he wash his hands?
1: <laughs> anyway, that, but that was my little Singapore story. Yeah. Brilliant. We're just going to take some of the, some of the readers' questions, um, which sort of dot around a bit. Uh, I could, there's quite a nice one here about, because you're obviously the head of the GPDA, the Grand Prix Drivers Association. Um, this K111, um, I don't think he was christened that. I think that's just a, an online username. Um, he's asking, what does the GP, GPDA actually do? And also, what have you achieved that outsiders might not have heard of, that might not have been in the press? or um, yeah. So what does it do? And then just an example of, of what you've achieved.
2: <laughs> uh, good question. Um, so, if you take the big scheme of the GBD, is uh, apart from F1 itself the oldest organization and longest-lasting organization. Uh, it's the d- some people call it a union. We are not a union because we don't stop things happening. We actually uh, just want to have the drivers united and organize the various and really varying opinions of drivers and channel it to cooperate with the stakeholders. Um, sometimes that's confronting them because the drivers feel so and most 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 of the times it's just let's work together. Uh, Over the years uh, the GPDA has most of the times been a driving force in asking the FIA to look into safety and improve the safety Um, which when cars are safer nowadays you feel ashamed if you say F1 is safe. I think it is a unique selling point of racing that we don't jeopardize performance, but we making the car safer and safer. I think it's a unique selling point we should underline as a strength. Um, And these cars are incredibly safe. Uh, That means we can also race very aggressive and we can have such high speeds. And we can race Singapore, Drex, Monaco and still do it despite the entire world is moving into a safety cushion much more extreme than we do in racing. So that's something you can see that GPD's role. What you can't see and what is not in the media for a particular reason is not in the media. So I'm not wanting to name some of the examples, but we do have uh, an influence. Uh, We do have a very good cooperation and one thing I can say is that very recently from a top, top FIA man they said over the last few years we have never had such a good dialogue between drivers and the rule makers and stakeholders. Uh, which definitely all of us find beneficial and uh, that's something I hope we can continue and I hope all of the drivers not all of them are GBDA members but they're all coming to the meetings and we see it as a together we have to make sure that our sport uh, is fit for the future to attract more fans and to keep growing because the very beginning of the conversation we said is drivers have a very puristic view to And the simple aspect of racing is, we went into this sport because we love it and we want it to be the coolest ever sport, which millions of people around the world watching and are excited about. We don't think political, we just want the best for this sport.
1: It's, good. it's great to hear that, isn't it, um, for the f- future of Formula One. Uh, I d- one more question. I'm sorry, we've gone a little bit over time. Um, I d- I'm sure the, the listeners and, and viewers won't mind at all, um, but as long as you don't miss your flight. Um, i quite like this one. This is from uh, Reti. If you were boss of Verts Grand Prix team, which of your former teammates would you have as your two drivers? <laughs> yeah. no,
2: the
1: first question I have is, who finances the team? Um, there is a mystery backer who's given you all the budget you need. Yeah. Okay. Good. It's Simon. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's called it's Simon Aaron. No, it's,
3: <laughs> a, it's, a, it's a parsnip manufacturer from Wantage. Right, yeah. uh, yeah.
4: yeah. never sold so many on the back <laughs> of that Steven story. Steven Spielberg <laughs> for
2: ET's sales <laughs> gone through the roof after this podcast. I wouldn't put any of my teammates because by now, <laughs> now they're equally old as I am, so well past the due date. So um, unlimited budget. I don't know uh, who I put in. Actually I could put in my sons.
1: There we go. There we go. The in the family. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 gonna have to be a three car team, otherwise yeah. you're gonna have a few problems to yeah. sort at home. Um, Alex, thank you so much for t- um, t- spending so much time with us and, and sharing all your, all your memories. They've been absolutely brilliant. Simon, thank you very much. No Alan, thank you very much for doing all the audio and the video is per normal. And Nick, thank you very much for joining us for the very first podcast. I hope, it, I hope it didn't disappoint.
4: Fabulous. <laughs> Loved
1: it. Uh, we'll see you all in a couple of weeks for a podcast with Jody Schechter, the 1979 Formula One world champion. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And we'll see you then. Bye-bye.
0: Some things are made to cope with puddles and rain. Others deal with the stickiest of mud. And as for the snow, that takes a warm coat and sure footing. But when it comes to dealing with all conditions, there's only one thing that springs to mind. Mercedes-Benz formatic. all-wheel drive performance in any condition. So whatever the weather or road throws at you, you're ready. To see the 4 range for yourself, visit your local Mercedes-Benz retailer.